gentlemen, this is a concrete concern at WSQF 94.5. How are you? Sorry for the technical difficulties there. but Oh, you should see the mess I just did in the studio. I'm always badgering everybody here about spilling water on this thing, and I just did that. I got Victorious Ed Vidal, who only comes to the studio now when there's like really important people calling in. So like you Adam. Are, so you're one of them. I just want I, you to I know. I do. I appreciate that. The very kind. And uh, you know, Sydney Powell, she's she's better looking than you, but she's you know not as special as you. So I know that he came here for you, not for her. You know what I mean? Uh, speak to uh, speak to Ed because I got to clean up the water. I just mess I just made here. Adam, just thank let you. Let me know when we're gonna go live. No, we're live, my friend. No, we're, we're live. We're live. I'm not messing around here. You know, I live with urgency. I live with urgency now. You know, life is not a dress rehearsal. Yeah, man. One day I'm in an emergency room, and the next day I'm in the room Adam, where thank it happens. You. Thank you very much for calling uh, with concrete with the uh, concrete conservative with the no. We're statues, statues of stories. And, stories. Now. and I was just telling Manny that you were going to talk about the cover letter sending the Constitution. Now we're we're trying to. I was trying to uh, remember. This was cover letter was signed by George Washington, and we think it was uh, actually composed by Hamilton, and it was addressed to the Continental Congress proposing that this new constitution be put out for um, approval. Is that correct? That's a perfect TN, or perfect setup, and yep. exactly right. So let me give a little bit more background. So anyone who's listening, there are various ways that you can fully maximize this experience. So first, we can listen to us, which is what we're doing now live. There's also the podcast. And I'm inviting everyone who wants to read what we're going to be talking about. In fact, you can follow along with us by going to the statutesandstories.com website. And uh, here we've got two po- actually three posts. So you could really go through, and it's, it's a fascinating subject. And <clears throat> we could spend probably several hours going through this. But as you put your finger on it, there was a cover letter. And I'm going to make the argument tonight and in future discussions that this was one of the most important, and hold me to it, challenge me on this, that this is one of the most important cover letters in American history. So first, what is a cover letter? And I don't want to talk about lawyers, but whenever somebody... What? Business executive, whenever, How dare you? <laughs> whenever you send a document, an important document, you don't just drop it in the mail. You have a letter that summarizes or gives the cover, a transmittal letter that right. sort of uh, lays the groundwork for what's to follow. So this was the letter that was sent by, and here, Manny, I'm going to throw out to you, the, uh, where was, and this is for the listeners and everybody, where was the Constitution written? And everybody knows it was Independence Hall. This was in Philadelphia. This is that important summer. Some call it the miraculous summer of 1787. So they meet in May. They finish up on September 17th is that important date, which is Constitution Day, when the Constitution is signed by 39 of the founding fathers of that important generation. <clears throat> so they're in Philadelphia, but Congress at the time, so we sort of already touched on it then. Uh, so to both of you, where did Congress meet in 1787? New, the New, Congress? New York and Federal Hall down on uh, near Wall Street. Exactly. So they the In front of King's College. No, no. King's, no. No, yeah. King's College is uptown somewhat. Oh, okay. That was Columbia so, University. Oh, Columbia. Right. Became right. Columbia. Columbia has moved around over yeah. time. All right, go ahead. I so just, the the high-level summary is that they write the Constitution in the summer, starting in May, ending on September 17th, they write it. And on that day, they line up. And if you go to the website, statutesandstories.com, you can see the famous pictures of how they line up with Washington standing, and they're all signing the Constitution. So what do they do with it? And the answer is they send it with a letter, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight, to, from Philadelphia, 
to New York, because that's where the Confederation Congress, you can call it the Confederation Congress, or the technically it's referred to as the, uh, not the Continental, but the Confederation Congress. Okay. So they mail it and it takes, it's actually delivered by the secretary of the convention, personally delivers it to New York, where the Congress was meeting. So this letter, which is this whole fascinating conversation, in five paragraphs, and that's, we're going to spend hours talking about five paragraphs, but I'm going to make the case, which is what I do on the website, that this is a very important letter, which has really been forgotten, and that's how I refer to it. If anyone goes to the website, part one of this series is called, let me pull up the title, so part one is the Constitution's Forgotten Cover Letter, and the reason I figured this out is I have all these old law books, these old statute books and these old law books, <clears throat> and in the old days, this is after the Constitution was, was uh, put into book form, and it was put in newspapers first, and those were called broadsides. So after it was printed in law books, and when the first Congress met, they would do books, and they would send it around the 13 states at the time, and then uh, you had Vermont come in, and you had some of the uh, Tennessee come in. So they would make copies of the laws. That's how people would know what the laws was. They would print them into law books. So the law books would, at the very beginning, have the Constitution, and right behind the Constitution, so if the Constitution is pages 1 to 20, then page 21 would be the cover letter that we're talking about. About tonight. So the cover letter used to be a big deal because it was distributed and people would read it and it was referred to, we'll talk about tonight, in the debates. These are the debates at the ratification conventions. So it used to be a big deal, but in modern times, people have really gone off the radar. And uh, I've you know, informally spoken to lots of folks and they're like, cover letter, what are you talking about? The Constitution had a cover letter? So we're going to explain tonight why we think it's important. And I've also reached out to, and here, I had, um, it's a very interesting email that you sent me, and I want to talk about that also. But during, you know, we can talk about how the corona is horrible and being uh, locked up, if you will, and sequestered and quarantined uh, is uh, not ideal. But with that said, one of the advantages was I was able to reach out to a lot of the historians, uh, to biographers of Hamilton and Grubner Morris. And that's the name that's going to come up tonight, Grubner Morris. And then uh, we can debate how you spell and how you actually, how you pronounce his name, Grubner. As a Grubner Morris was one of the very important founders who wrote the last draft or the penultimate draft of the Constitution on this committee on style that we'll talk about tonight. Uh, so why do I mention that? Is because historians, to the extent they even know what the cover letter is, they generally assume that it was written by Grubner Morris because he is the penman, and I'm putting in quotes, he was referred to as the penman of the Constitution. He did that last draft. And Grubner Morris is, gets a lot of credit, and I agree with this, for doing the preamble. So, Ed or Manny, do you want to just give a couple lines from the preamble real quick? Because this is the work of Group Group yeah, uh, I'm handicapped. I can't be reading anything. No, I don't, I don't have it in front of me. So if you have it, go ahead. Okay. So working from memory, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, and this sort of poetic, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, sort of a sing-song. Right. Uh, so the prior draft, before Group Morris took it, said that we the people of and then it listed the state. We the people of, and I don't remember if it did it alphabetically, but you know, Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina. So that's how the preamble originally started, and that was the draft that came from the Committee on Detail. But the Committee on Style, and that was their job, five members, we'll talk about who they were, to sort of polish and to clean it up and to organize it. So the prior version of the Constitution coming out of the Committee on Detail had 23 articles, and the Committee on Style bundled it into seven articles that we have today. So the historians, of, just to complete the thought, though, so the, the preamble is where Gruner Morris, instead of listing the states, he changed it into we the people of the United States. And that's mm -hmm. referred to by one of my favorite historians, Joseph Ellis, as one of the most important editorial yep. inventions or editorial actions in the history of government to 
put that language in there that it's we the people of the United States, not we the people of the different states. We could debate what that means. You know, that that's language that resonates 200 years later. We the people. So that It definitely up. resonates right yeah. now when we the people well, bailed out the banks in 2008. Also, it, it also affects the arguments of how it should be interpreted because this is a constitution among the people, not just among the states. No, but it's also the pronouncement, we. We the people. No, no, but the people and if they had said the people of and then listed the states, it would have given the states a stronger role in the federal system. And I think this is well, actually, I mean, I, I actually like that, that you yeah. just said that, because we could use that today. Uh, we could use that today. For example, the 17th Amendment removed the, the states from electing the, the senators. And recalling them. And Well, whatever, yes. And no, so, not whatever. That's the most, yes. most powerful thing ever. Yes. So that, you know, that that's a, it's really, um, I'm usually in favor of having the states be I, an active I, player senator, in the federal system. I would as have recalled all the attorney senators as, as all is at happening, once. As is happening now with the reopening of the various states, the federal government has correctly left it to the individual states to decide, you know, according to their local conditions, when they can reopen from this quarantine. Uh, um, Adam, do you know how he's trying to take over the, the show again? No, I'm not. Go ahead. No, but, uh, you see how that he does that? He does that. You know, he thinks because he grew a beard that I don't know who he is. This is the first. This is the first phrase. These are the opening lines of the Constitution. Right. So I'm just giving the, the broad introductions of what we're going to talk about. And uh, you know, Gruber Morris and some of the historians have pointed out he couldn't really list the states anyway because we didn't know which ones were going to ratify and approve the Constitution. Right. So by instead of referring to it by listing the states by name, instead of we the people of the United States. There were practical issues he was addressing. And also, remember how the Constitution, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, how it was approved. It wasn't approved by the state legislatures. And Hamilton and Washington, they knew that the states, especially New York, and that was Governor Clinton at the time, George Clinton, and some of the other states, they didn't want the federal government. They were, some of them, happy with the articles because they were going to lose power if a new federal government takes effect. They wanted a weak sum of the federal government. So remember, it was not being approved by the states. The way that the Constitution was ratified was conventions of voters who elected to the people to the convention. We spent hours talking about conventions. But yeah. here the point is that Gruber Morris wrote the preamble. He reorganized the Constitution from 23 articles into seven articles, and the historians have really assumed that he was also the one who wrote the cover letter. So next week, I think we'll focus on who I believe and the proof that I'm, you know, adducing for for the, the, that it wasn't drafted, drafted by Gruber Morris. So that'll be next week, perhaps. This week, I want to get more background about why the cover letter is important and, uh, you know, the process of how we got the cover letter. And I, I began by mentioning in the net if you want to wade in with that, 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 that article that you sent. But to hear the quick observation is, ironically, during the last month, people will ask, what have you been doing during the last month? How have you been using your time? So my father-in-law, if he's listening, you know, he cleaned up his garage. And my wife has been doing new recipes, and the kids have been doing, you know, drafting songs and all kinds of good stuff. Uh, I know Manny had a whole kind of different situation for the last uh, couple of weeks. So you know, people do different things. I was just calling attention to myself. <laughs> no, so, no. It, it's all good. So here, the, the point is that the last month, what have I been doing? And the answer is I've gotten into the research. And here's the, the larger point, which is I was able to send emails to historians around the country, and I asked them this question. I said, uh, you know, have you ever heard of the cover letters of the Constitution? And I explained my thesis. And I don't want to tell you what the thesis is. That'll be next week. But the thesis is that I suggest it wasn't written by Morris. I think it was written by one of the other members of that committee. So let me tell you who those members of the committee were. So it wasn't Gruber Morris, who was the only 
only person on the committee. It was Madison, and Madison is a heavyweight. You know, Madison is the father of the Constitution, many refer to him. The other members of the committee were, his, uh, his name is Johnson, and he became the president. And, man, you mentioned Columbia, uh, you know, uh, used to be King's College, and it became Columbia. So he became the president of Columbia University, or used to be King's College. So he was on the committee. He was the oldest on the committee, Johnson, uh, William Samuel Johnson. <clears throat> the other members of the committee were Rufus King. We mentioned Madison. Rufus uh, became a president, didn't he? No. What uh, uh, why do we uh, recognize his name, Rufus King? He did something. What did he do that was prominent, or did he do absolutely nothing? And he they, was a big federalist, and he was a good friend of Hamilton. So we'll talk more about good. Rufus King if you want. Uh, and and the, na the name is sort of an interesting name, and there are reasons why it echoes. And we can talk about Rufus. So uh, long story short, there were five members, and the fifth member of that committee, so Gouverneur Morris, Rufus King. Madison, Samuel Johnson, and then Alexander Hamilton. Uh -huh. uh, historians have always presumed that he wrote the cover letter, Morris. And some might think, well, it was a committee, so the whole committee maybe drafted it. And then next week, we're going to talk about my thesis of who I believe and can prove, in my opinion, who, who drafted it. So we'll do that next week. So tonight, we're going to sort of get into the weeds about what is this cover letter. And I was making the point that I sent these emails to around 30 or so really high-level historians and some of these names you would recognize. And I threw out my thesis to them, and I said, hey, you know, feel free to give me your thoughts. And I think normally I probably wouldn't have gotten much of a response. But because everyone is holed up, you know, doing their uh, doing their uh, quarantine, they actually looked at the emails, and I got some nice responses back where most of them basically said that, yeah, if you can prove it, it's plausible. And, you know, that uh, you know they hadn't really done the work on it, and I'm the first one to really delve into into this, this issue of who was responsible for drafting the cover letter. That's so great. So, so, Ed, do you want to talk about real quick about quarantine? And there's an interesting little tidbit about quarantine. Well, and yeah. You're going to run a risk into going to a rabbit hole. No, 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 no. What he wants to know is that, uh, you know, people, some people use their quarantines productively. And the case of. Uh, well, Isaac, you did. You, you Isaac, served on a food line. I, I, no, I didn't serve. <laughs> Katrina and I have been serving meals to the truly needy. Which in, is what I've been talking about. I've told the liberals, hey, hey, we, you we do offs. it every uh, when the food lines break out. I'm going to be serving Monday through Friday. I, little did I know, at 4 p.m. at the northeast corner of Coral Gables, we are uh, packing uh, meals cooked by the local restaurant. The owner is a member of our church, so he has kept busy. Uh, he's got some food uh, from the, uh, the the wholesalers. Have food that was intended for the cruise ships and for the airlines, and they have made it available at very low prices, or in some cases for nothing, because they were gonna throw it out any otherwise. So we have been helping with this food line in uh, Coral Gables, but and in addition, I wrote a, uh, a column for uh, a legal website called uh, Takings in the Time of Virus, objecting to this uh, unconstitutional, according to the Fifth Amendment, the Constitution requires Oh, okay. The Constitution requires that taking a private property for can only be done for a public use with just compensation. But the other point is that Isaac Newton was in quarantine at Cambridge University, and he invented calculus. So let's see if any what of us can reach Jeez. his achievement. So go ahead, Adam. So that's phenomenal, Adam. That was a perfect segue. 1695. I'm sorry, 1665, I think right. it was. Uh, this is, uh, everyone knows, he sits under an apple tree at the story, Sir, Sir Isaac Newton, and he discovers the modern theory of gravity, but he was a genius, and he also 
as a 16-year-old student, this is at Cambridge, I think it was. Yep. Um, you know, during, there was a, it was called the Black Death with the Black Plague, the bubonic plague, and they, they shut down Cambridge University. So he sent home, and uh, he's from a very wealthy family, he had an estate, but he used his time productively and effectively invents the major ideas, the underpinnings of modern calculus. That's what he did during the, during the quarantine. And so here I'm, I'm trying to not compare any of us to Isaac Newton. No. But, you know, what, what are we doing with our time? And that's the good news here is that I was able to reach out to historians who responded back to me, and we'll go into some of their responses next week. So have you are you planning to publish an article or something like this in a, in a historical publication, like the American Journal uh, or the Journal of American History or something like that? Absolutely. So people can read that's right now great. the draft. Part one and part two are on statutesandstories.com. Yep. And they're written for, you know, the average American, which is a good thing. They're written for a non-scholarly, non-academic listener or, or viewership or readership, right? Because that's who goes to the website. A lot of kids, a lot of college students, and people right. who love history. But I try to make it, you know, entertaining, and I try to make it, you know, accurate, but I try to make it readable. Great. So the next step is to convert it, because I don't have footnotes, I have links. But in order to get published in an academic, and that's your question, that to be get published in an academic publication, I'm sort of debating with myself. So I want to put it in a law review, and many would debate about law reviews are really led by, read by lawyers and judges and law students. And then you have history journals, which are read by history professors. So what's better to go with a law journal? Because it really touches on both. It's a legal issue. I'd rather go with the history the professors. <laughs> Thank you. I think you're right. Or I also sent a proposal to the Smithsonian Magazine, and that's yep. a general purpose magazine. And yep. I might do both. I might get it in an academic journal and also in a you know, more widespread common journal, which is the Smithsonian Magazine. So I haven't heard yet from Smithsonian. But, you know, this, this is people are on the cutting edge now when you're listening tonight. This is the first time where this is going to be discussed in the media. And, uh, and of course, it has been discussed on my website for the last uh, week or two. So part one is what we're talking about now, statutesandstories.com, all one word. And I start off by giving some background about the Constitution's letter. So on the final day of the convention, which is September 17th, the 39 delegates, they line up. And this is the last formal act of the convention. The presiding officer, and Washington was the presiding officer, and Washington is the one that signs this letter. And the letter then goes with the secretary of the convention to New York. So that's a little bit of the background. But also, you know, people can debate, well, yes, Washington signs it. So how do we describe the letter? It is Washington's letter because he signs it. But it is also the product of the committee because it came out of that committee. And we mentioned who the five members of the committee were. And before Washington signs it, in the days before they finally conclude, the entire convention, all delegates, listen to the reading of the draft letter. They listen to it one time, and they go through it line by line and vote paragraph by paragraph. So because the entire convention authorized and reviewed the letter, it's not just Washington's letter, it's not just the committee's letter, it is the Constitutional Convention's letter. And this gets into the importance of the letter. How often do you have a deliberative body, you know, the Congress go through line by line and approve, and I'll use both leaders, what McConnell and what Nancy Pelosi say, no, you know, Congress might vote on a resolution, but they went through line by line and approved this letter, Washington signs it and it goes to Congress. So what does this letter talk about? But before we go into that detail, uh, and again, I'm just now going to the website to uh, refresh on some of the interesting facts here. Uh, another quick point is that the Constitutional Convention, if you remember, and maybe I'll do this in the form of a question, they started meeting in May, they finished up in September, but did the population of America know in any detail what was going on during this time period? They, know that they knew there was a convention, right? And they knew that the convention was going to reform the Articles of Confederation. 
And so here I'm asking the question, and people who are the history students and the high school students and middle school students who are listening, you know, well, what did people know about what was going on in Philadelphia? You know, either of you want to take a guess? I think there were some newspapers published in different places, and there are pamphlets. So that's right. There were newspapers that were speculating. And here's the point, that the doors were closed. There were guards guarding the door and the windows, and that's why it was hot in, in that room in the Philadelphia, uh, you know, today we call it Independence Hall. But it was a confidential meeting. It was a secretive meeting. Ah. And, we could, and we could debate whether or not that made sense, but the theory was, that they wanted the delegates to be able to speak freely. They didn't want information. So basically, out. Uh, this meeting was just to deal with the rules on what is about to happen. But that was the first committee that met, was the Rules Committee. And Alexander Hamilton, by the way, was on the Rules Committee with a very famous Virginia... So this whole, this whole country started off with uh, PC, with political correctness. No. <laughs> yes, it did. So let's go into the details now, because we got okay. 30 minutes of details. You got 30 minutes of details? Oh, we, we can do lots of details. Okay, let's do it then. It's, we got 30 minutes. Let's do the details. On the, okay. The, so the plans are ready. All right. So what I'm describing here is that one of the reasons the letter was so important is because nobody knew what was coming out of the convention. They just knew that there was a convention to amend the articles. So this letter is the first introduction, and it's going, as we said, from Philadelphia to New York, and it's telling the Congress in New York, along with two resolutions that were included, about what they have to do, requesting, and this Congress can do what it wants, but Congress is being requested now to send this Constitution, to send this cover letter to the 13 states, so the 13 states can put in motion a process of electing delegates, and then the delegates would hold the ratification conventions. Well, I mean, it sounds like this cover letter kept New York from signing the Constitution. No, no, the no, last no. ones. Well, hell, I mean, come on, I'm connecting dots here. <laughs> oh, my so, God. I'm going to walk you through the the way I've organized the post. So post one, or part one, which we're talking about tonight, is background about the cover letter and what the purpose of the cover letter was. And, you know, what we know about the cover letter, how it was published. That's part one tonight. How is the letter described by historians? And uh, let's see, what else do I have on part one? I talk about the objectives of the cover letter. I tee up the authorship issues to, to give you this debate, which I'm sort of creating. And I'm, I'm raising a question. Uh, and and I, I don't want to give the name for it, but part two is going to talk about who I think drafted the cover letter. So part two is going to be about the proof that I've been able to cobble together over the last month. And i like to point out that there is a wonderful website, Manny and Ed, that I use all the time. And these are a lot of the links that I put in, and it's through the National Archives. And what they've done is they've digitized 183 letters and documents written by Washington. These are the papers of Franklin and the papers of Madison. So anybody can go to the, the National Archives website, and I give all kinds of links. And you can do searches if you want to search for Hamilton or Madison, and you want to see letters between Hamilton and Madison, or you want to put in keywords, right? Then you can you can do that. And that's what and I must yeah. I must interrupt you. And Obama did it because he's the one who put up the money to digitize the National Archives. Now wait a minute. Uh, one thing: Obama's uh, so-called presidential library is not. It doesn't have any of that. They're not okay, doing that. Okay, but he said National Archives. Yeah, yep. So I just wanted uh, Adam to feel at home here that Obama, okay. I had to give kudos to Obama. He put up the money for the National Archives. Okay. The National Archives has been around for a while. And it's no, the, the, digit, the digitizing. <laughs> the digit, and I don't know when they started doing it. I'll look into that, Manny. You watch. You better come back with the right answer. 
I will, I will. So the National Archives is where you have the Declaration of Independence and where you have the Constitution. But to make these other documents available, and they're really all over the country. Many of them are in you know, different research universities. Virginia, University of Virginia has a lot of Jefferson's papers and the article, the Library of Congress has a lot of Madison and Jefferson papers. But you know, now they're available, and you're probably right, Manu, within the last 10 years that they've been digitized. So historians, and this gets to the issue for part two, you know, I'm raising this premise, which I call, and I won't give the name, but I'm calling it the blank authorship thesis. And I'm proposing that so-and-so drafted this cover letter, not Gruppner Morris. And the only reason I'm able to go out on this limb and make these arguments is because I've been able to spend time going through 183,000, and I'll do them one by one, I do word searches, and I try to get hits. And I have a bunch of arguments that I'm going to be making based upon what I'm referring to as fingerprints. I think they were the fingerprints of a certain founder that, that demonstrate, in my opinion, very clearly who wrote it, and it wasn't Gruvner Morris. So part one lays out what this process is and gives an overview. Part two is going to give my thesis about who I think wrote it, and that's what I'm asking the historians. I'm saying, shoot down my thesis. And I also have what I call the division of labor theory, or the division of labor hypothesis. I, I presume that Gruvner Morris wrote the Constitution, and we know that, because there are letters where Gruvner Morris admits that he wrote the Constitution, the final draft, and Madison admits that it was mainly, and this is the way Madison said it, Madison says that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, that it was the fingers of Gruvner Morris, the pen of Gruvner Morris, that wrote the final draft and did the preamble. Uh, my argument is that uh, I mentioned the, the older one of the members on that committee, and that was William Samuel Johnson, I think he supervised all the work of the committee. And there are reasons why I might be able to say that. I think that Madison, if you remember, was the one that kept notes from the convention. And every day he would go back into his room and he would recopy his notes, which were, you know, it was a big process. They were working long days. And he would go back after dinner and recopy the, the, the skeletal notes to make them more, you know, comprehensive and not to forget anything. So he had these elaborate notes. So he was able to, in my opinion, to work with the other members of the committee. So Morris is the one who does the Constitution in, the, in this committee. Um, I'm saying that uh, William Samuel Johnson, who becomes the head of, of Columbia University, he's the one that sort of supervises. There were two resolutions that we haven't really talked about, and the resolutions dealt with the, the process of ratification. So my argument is that because Rufus King was mainly focused, that was one of his main issues during the debates on the ratification process. So it would make sense for the guy that had the good ideas about how ratification should work to be the one that does the ratification resolutions. But who does the cover letter? And that's where next week we'll get into the details, which I know you want, Manny, on the, on the, the draftsmanship. And then part three, and we don't have to do them all separately. We can combine a lot of them. But part three is going to get into why the cover letter is important. And to just sketch the, the scratch the surface on why it's important, which is part three, um, when you look at the different ratification conventions, this cover letter introduces the Constitution to the 13 states, and it's really an amazing process that once the newspapers got a hold of it and they gave it to the newspapers, the newspapers printed this cover letter and printed the Constitution, you know, first page, and really because back then the newspapers were four pages long. That's how the newspapers were generally done, four pages. So they dedicated you know, almost the entire newspapers to do the cover letter and the Constitution. And that's, it invited every member of America to participate in this process, this national debate. Should we do this Constitution? And, and you know, should we agree, agree to it? Do we need to amend it? So the entire nation was invited to look. It was an experiment in democracy that, you know, has never happened before, where an entire country, except for the slaves who had no say whatsoever and women couldn't vote, uh, but you know, effectively all those who were part of the electoral process were invited 
to, to get involved. And I'll point out to you that in New York is an example where generally only property holders could vote, but they allowed anyone who was a didn't have to be a property holder to vote on the delegates to the convention. So what's the point? The point is that the entire this cover letter initiated a national discussion about government and about the creation and adoption of our constitution. So that was one of the reasons why this is important, and it was used. This letter, signed by Washington, was printed in the newspapers all around the country. And I'm pointing out to you who was the, we could debate who, and maybe it's not just one person, but who were the most influential, the most famous names in 1787 who were at the convention? You want to just throw out some names to me? Ben well, Franklin, say, George Washington, um, uh, Hamilton, Madison. 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 Uh, did the, Washington didn't show up a lot, did he? No, he was there all the time. He, he just a, didn't say anything. Oh, he, he, he was, was. He was the uh, he was silent Justice Thomas of the uh, con- Constitutional Convention. He was a presiding officer, but How he did. John Jay. John Jay was there. I right? think so. Yes. Okay, that's okay. enough. That's enough. Of that. So, 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 real quick, just so we're completely accurate, and you're right that Washington was there from the beginning, and he didn't get involved with the debates because he was the presiding officer. So he would appoint people to committees, especially at the beginning. He would recognize people, so you couldn't talk until you were recognized by Washington. So he's there to sort of oversee the presiding officer. Jay was not one of the delegates. Jay is from New York. The three right. New York delegates were Hamilton, were Robert, sorry, Lansing, and Yates. Uh, so it's, uh, I forgot the first names offhand, it'll come to me, but uh, Robert Yates and John Lansing were the three delegates from New York. And this is, this is interesting that, you know, Hamilton for years, and this is what I go into, starting in 1780, had been trying to, when he was working with Washington, and he and Washington understood, and this is more background, that the articles, the way it was working, it was a very loose confederation of states. The states did whatever they wanted. There was no funding for the federal government. There was no funding for the army. There was no commitment to pay their soldiers their salaries or their, or their, um, you know, their, their pensions that were being promised to keep them at Valley Forge. That was a deal that was struck. Congress said, yes, if you make it through the war, we'll give you a pension if you get injured. And Congress didn't have the ability to raise money. That was, there was also problems with the states taxing each other and putting in limitations on uh, using the rivers. They need to work together. They can't be competing with each other in a way that countries uh, would treat each other as, as, uh, as adversaries. So the states were beginning to gang up on one another. And in this period of the, of the Confederation period, things were beginning to come apart at the seams. You had what was referred to as the Shays Rebellion, where there was a protest where this was in Massachusetts. Um, so there were, there were things were beginning to unravel. And Washington and Hamilton and a handful of other nationalists realized that we needed to improve the articles. And that was why the convention was called. And what's my point? My point is that New York, under Governor Clinton, was an example of a state which was opposed to making big changes. So Hamilton originally wanted five delegates to go to New York, and this is mainly why you've got more um, accurate information here than you realize. So there was some talk about who would be the five that would go from New York to the convention, and Livingston would have been one of them, Jay might have been one of them, but the New York legislature, under the thumb of Governor Clinton, so I'll call them the anti-federalists or the Clintonians, uh, there are other words for them, but uh, the, the Clinton faction of New York in 1787 uh, did not want a, you know, a big constitutional convention. So what, what's the point? The point is that only three delegates went from New York. Mm-hmm. Pennsylvania sent, I think, around seven delegates. And whatever state you were from, you generally knew who those delegates were, because these were the, the cream of the crop. These were the leaders of your state as a general rule. Uh, and they were, you know, these were people who were 
heads and shoulders above. You know, these were the they referred to as demigods. These were the most influential, most important, most respected people from around the country who were chosen to go to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. Not, not only that, but they they had they. Everybody who attended this convention knows that the other states don't necessarily like each other. The 13 states don't yeah. necessarily get along. And it's interesting that John Langdon from New Hampshire was one, was their delegate, and he signed. There were two delegates from New Hampshire, and he is the great-great-great-grandfather of our friend Carolina Ovario. Are you kidding me? No. I, she's a daughter of the American Revolution. Wow. An Argentine... Yes. I'm sorry to talk about She's not just a daughter of the American Revolution. She's a daughter of a founding father right. who signed the Constitution. Right. So, uh, the, I, I met her, really cool. meeting her last year, and I showed her a copy with the signature of her of her great, 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 however many generations grandfather. So uh, that, that's the whole, we could do a whole other special on, on John Langdon in New Hampshire. But each state sent delegates. New York sent three delegates. And I started by asking who were the most famous, and people can debate. But I think the most famous generally were Washington and Franklin. And Franklin was the oldest. He was in his 80s. And Hamilton and Rufus King, by the way, are two of the youngest. And Madison were some of the younger members of the convention. So when Washington sends this letter, which gets printed in the newspapers all around the country, and it introduces this excitement of this new constitution, do we adopt it, do we change it, do we vote it down? This whole country, the whole country is getting involved in this process, this debate. What are we going to do? Democracy in action. And that's one of the reasons why the constitution and the letter is so important, because it introduces this debate. So let's talk a little bit about New York. So New York, there were three delegates who were sent. And people may remember there were two major plans. There was the New Jersey plan, which I'm going to refer to as the small state plan, and there was the Virginia plan, and Virginia was the largest state at the time. The Virginia plan is the big state plan. And the way that the articles worked, and this was one of the problems, under the articles, you had to, the states voted, there were 13 states, and you had to have nine of the states had to vote to do something. And often the state wouldn't show up. So you couldn't get a quorum, and you didn't have enough to vote. And on certain things, you needed all the states to be unanimous. And Rhode Island was a troublemaker. And Rhode Island, who never sent anyone to the Constitutional Convention, was often obfuscating and obstructing. So a lot of work was not getting done at the Confederation Congress. And Rhode Island doesn't send anyone as a delegate. They're the only state that doesn't send anyone. But New York only sends three. And when it becomes clear, and this is the July timeframe, early July, and you know, from May until July, the big issue was the Virginia plan or the New Jersey plan, and they will do a compromise. And this isn't the subject of tonight, but just to give more more of the perspective, the New Jersey plan is the small state plan. So the New Jersey plan would have given Congress more authority, but it would have kept that 13-state vote, that you need a majority of the states or a supermajority, and the states are equal under the New Jersey plan. So that benefits the small, small states. The Virginia plan wanted to vote based upon population, right? So the Virginia plan, if you have more population, then you get more votes because you know, that's more fair from the standpoint of a larger state, which is going to be giving more money because you have more population, more resources. So they, they fight over this for basically two months, and then Connecticut comes along with the Connecticut Compromise, and the Constitution's all based upon compromises. But the, the most famous compromise is the Great Compromise, or the Connecticut Compromise, which melds together the New Jersey plan and the Virginia plan, and you want to talk real quick, either of you, about what you get with our Congress today because of the Connecticut plan, which melts together Virginia and New York. I'm sorry, Virginia and New Jersey. I can only think you get a bunch of lies. No, you get two senators from each state. And then the lower house has proportional representation and every, uh, elections every two years. But then the upper house, which is like the House of Lords, 
has two senators from each state, regardless of the size of the state, for staggered six-year terms, initially elected by the state legislatures and now directly elected after the 17th Amendment. So Damn, that, that, was, that, that was so well done. And, you know, I got <laughs> chivers up my legs. So sometimes I disagree with you. I don't like to argue with you. But here, here you're, you're right on. Right on, the yeah, right on the money. So because of this Connecticut plan, the Great Compromise, the big states win and the little states win. The New Jersey plan becomes the Senate, and the Virginia plan becomes the House. You mix them together, and you have a bicameral legislation. So that's because it took them two months to figure that out. But that was really what they did. They compromised. Big states get something, small states get something. And they also figure out we're going to remember under the articles, you just had one branch of government. You just had the Congress. You didn't have an executive. You didn't have a judicial. You just had the Congress. But now they realize we're going to break it into three parts. You think that was a genius decision? I think so. Yep. A beautiful decision. So they realized that if we're going to give more power to Congress, we need someone to check on Congress. Well, and all, But how come there wasn't really a... Uh, you haven't mentioned, uh, I always thought that the, the formation of the Senate was to calm the fancy of the House. Like, yeah, but that's the legislature branch. He's talking about we're now going to have an executive branch separate, that's Article 2, and a judicial branch separate, that's Article 3. For example, in, uh, Great Britain, until about 10 years ago, didn't have a separate Supreme Court. Legal decisions were decided by a committee of lords, law lords. And now, you know, this, so the, this is revolutionary what the uh, framers were doing. That's a, that's a very cool cool point because the audience would have never known that Britain didn't have a, a separate Until Supreme 10 Court. or 20 years ago. Wow. They were decided in the legislature. The legislature, the upper house, had a committee of law lords. They were, you know, you know appointed by the other lords. They oh, were, they were attorneys, right? Right. Yeah. And so that that's how it went. Yeah, that's how it went, and you guys were thrilled. Law yeah. lords. More, more billable hours. Yeah. <laughs> All right, continue, Adam. All right, so what we're describing is, and I'm getting to a point about New York. So it takes them roughly two months to come up with the Connecticut Compromise, which is voted on on July 5th, and that's a funny date, July 5th. This is a day before July 4th, but they didn't, you know, July 4th has nothing to do with the Constitution. That has to do with the Declaration. But the point is that once it becomes clear that they're going to agree on this compromise, which is going to depart from the Articles, the Articles, every state is equal, they each get one vote. Once it's clear that they're doing this, what's called stepping away from the Articles and giving more power to Congress, and, you know, once they're deviating from the Articles, the two New York delegates, Lansing and Yates, Say that we're leaving, we're out of here because we were only charged with improving and correcting and enhancing the articles, and you are basically trashing. That's not their words, but you're de you're deviating from, you're you're separating from what our assignment was. We were given strict instructions by the New York governor, by the New York legislature, were to improve the articles, and you're removing the articles and replacing the articles. So on July 5th, Yates and Lansing, the two New York delegates, and of course Hamilton is the third, they leave leaving Hamilton as the only delegate from New York. This is the only state where this happens. All the yep. other states, you might have people leave on business or disagree, but this is the first time that delegates left for principle. In protest. And this is a problem for Hamilton because you needed to have a quorum of your state in order to vote. 
So that takes away Hamilton's right to vote because he's the only delegate from New York, and he is the only delegate from New York who signs the Constitution. And I invite people go pull up a copy of the Constitution on, on, the, on the Internet and look and see all the names of these wonderful founders. The only signatory from New York is Alexander Hamilton. And he doesn't sign on behalf of the state because he's not authorized to sign as the only one person, but he signs alongside the name of New York. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because and I refer to this in the post as his delegate, he calls it his delicate situation. His delicate situation is that the two other New York delegates are really trying to undermine the convention. They're voting to do very little and to just do a New Jersey plan. They're opposing the Connecticut plan, and they pick up and they leave. And eventually Hamilton leaves, but then he comes back because there's nothing for him to do if he can't vote, and he has things to do, and he comes back and forth. But the point here is that he knows he was very limited with only three delegates from New York, and he knows his governor, and he knows his legislature. He knows it's going to be an uphill battle to get this Constitution approved. So when we talk about Part 2 next week, and I mentioned Part 2 is who wrote that that's my thesis, Part 3 is why this letter is important, and Part 4 is all kinds of questions that I've come up with in doing this research for further historians and for further researchers to get their fingers wet into details. I'll give an example for Part 4. And we've talked about the Society of the Cincinnati before. Ed, you want to mention what the Society of the Cincinnati is? I think those are people who uh, supported George Washington. He's compared to Cincinnatus, a Roman general who had been a farmer. He was made the dictator of Rome during a, a military emergency. And when he was done uh, defending Rome, he went back to farming. Correct. So this is... Yeah, this I mean, Ed's on fire today. I don't know what to do yeah. with it. You think it came with a beard or what? No, it's just I'm a Cincinnati Reds fan, so I know. Oh, but I was I was into Johnny Bench at one time. Yeah. But I don't remember any Tony of that. Perez. Tony Perez. Tony Perez. Koichi. Yep. All right. Well, he's really on fire today. I don't know what. I think it's because Katrina drove him here, so he feels like special. He's being chauffeured or something. <laughs> God, incredible. Continue, Adam. That was that blew me away. How in the hell do you remember that? Or do you guys leak this stuff to him before the show? Yeah, Donna Brazil called me with all the questions. <laughs> Donna Brazil called them with all the questions. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay, go ahead, Adam. So the reason I'm mentioning the Society of the Cincinnatus, or the Cincinnati, is that if you were in the Continental Army for three years, you qualified for membership. And it was a civic group. And if anyone goes to the, the tavern in, in New York, this is uh, France's tavern, there's a very famous scene where all the officers after they win the Revolutionary War, they line up and they're basically giving hugs to Washington. And these generals and these commanders, I mean, who had spent the war struggling and starving and bleeding with one another, they, they all you know, give their allegiance and they say goodbye to Washington. And they realize, you know, this is a moment we have to preserve. And they create this organization, which is the Society of the Cincinnatus, and it's to give money to the children and the beneficiaries and you know, to keep in touch with one another and to do charitable good deeds. And, you know, Washington is the head of the, of the society. So what's the point? The point is that the Society of the Cincinnati had meetings and did different things. And one of the arguments I make is that the Society of the Cincinnati has in their charter language about during the war because of the bonds of brotherhood, and they call it the, the bonds of amity, and I don't have it in front of me, but the spirit of amity, right? And that language, which is in the cover letter. So I'm making the connection that whoever wrote the cover letter referring to this society, or it doesn't say the society, but the spirit of amity is really capturing and touching into, connecting into the society of the Cincinnati to have the military officers and members of the Continental Army support the, the Constitution. He's, he's, whoever writes the cover letter, I'm arguing, 
in part four, when I need more research on this, but I'm trying to say that this was intentional. The reason why it uses this spirit of amity is because that's a way of pulling the heartstrings and connecting into the society of the Cincinnati. That's, that's one of the minor points that I make, and I need more proof of that. Um, and of course, I could be wrong, but it could be coincidence. So that, that's an example of how would I prove who wrote the letter? And let me say what the difficulty is. The difficulty is it's in Groovner Morris's handwriting. So what I have to overcome is, you know, Levinson, you're not a trained historian. You're a lawyer during the day. You know, how, how are you presumptuous? And let me give more background. In 1912, there was a very famous Harvard historian. He spent a decade putting together all of the letters of the founders and all of the documents. And remember that it was all secret. Madison's notes were not published until 1840 when Madison, he dies in 1836, and Madison's notes are published in 1840, and the Congress authorizes that his notes will get published. So it takes a couple of years for his notes to publish, and it turns out I mentioned Yates and Lansing, who were the two other New York delegates. So one of those New York delegates, he starts releasing his notes, and this was even before Madison's notes came out. So you have drips and drabs start coming out, but historians didn't have much to work with until Madison's notes get published in 1840, and then there are some other work that was done where they get more information from the, from the debates and the ratification conventions. And over time, historians start pulling all this data together. And 1911 is an important year because his name is Max Ferrand. Max Ferrand does his multi-volume publication where he combines everything together chronologically. There was also what was called the journal. So there was Madison's notes, which is his personal notes, but there was also the journal kept by the secretary, which was just the votes as opposed to the actual debates. So the journal just has who votes on what and what the votes were, but doesn't have the, the nitty-gritty. Madison gives us the nitty-gritty. So Max Brand in, 19, in 1911, and then he does a book where he ties it all together in 1912, he has a paragraph where he talks about this cover letter. And this is the first time a historian, it had been printed, as I said earlier, in the in different law books, and it was printed in the newspapers. It was very important in the newspapers, but the first time a historian really pays attention to it is Max Baran, that he says in a single paragraph that it appears to be in the pen of Gruppner Morris. And I'm not a trained handwriting expert, but I don't disagree. I think it probably is in his handwriting. So how do I overcome Max Baran, who's this giant historian, a scholar from 1911-1912, who spent 10 years going through all this stuff? How do I overcome his sentence where he says it was probably Gruppner Morris? And the answer is, my theory is it was just a draft. It was a working draft. That doesn't mean that Gruppner Morris drafted it. And the secretary of the convention burned a lot of the documents, except for the formal official versions. So we may never get the, you know, the copy, which I think exists, and we don't have the copy that Washington signed. We don't have, it was probably given to the printer, and the printer probably kept it. So we may never have the original signed copy, because I, I would have made the point that at the National Archives, uh, and we, we talked about this another night, the room where you have the Charter of Freedoms, where you have the Declaration of Independence, where you have the Bill of Rights, where you have the Constitution, that room off of the mall in, in Washington, D.C., the Constitution's cover letter should be there, but they don't have it. It has been lost to history. So the, the high burden I'm putting for myself is, hi, how are you, Adam, coming in to say that if Max Barand in 1912 says that it was written by Gruppner Morris in his one sentence where he talks about it, you know, how can I disprove it? And that's what I try to do in part two. So anyone, go to the website and see if you agree with me, and it's very detailed. And I'm going to point out to you, normally when I write posts, you know, there maybe you can read it in the 15, 20 minutes, depending upon you know how much I put in there, uh, if you could, if you use the links. But this is a very detailed because I'm, I'm raising a high burden for myself. I'm you know I don't want to be too presumptuous, but I'm making a bold claim that it was drafted. Wait till next week. 
to see who was drafted it. Uh, so but my point is that how do I go about proving this? So let me get into some of the details. So I've used the Founders Archive, which is this, this website where you can do searches of these primary documents. I'm also very familiar with a lot of the biographies. And without giving away too much, there are phrases which are in the Constitution's cover letter. And what I'm trying to demonstrate is that those phrases have been used by someone before. And that's where I connect the dots. That there is somebody, and this gets into an issue about circumstantial evidence, and I don't want to quote Latin because I'm, I'm bad at Latin, but um, by the way, Manny or Ed, are either of you guys good at Latin? If I, if I give you the spelling to... I don't want sure. To we're, we're Latins. Yeah, we'll give it a shot. We're Latinos. <laughs> and now we'll make it up because that's also if, very Latin. <laughs> if you go to part two... If you're near the computer, if you go to part two, and it's a, it's a coincidence, but I think it's a nice coincidence, uh, without giving away too much, Alexander Hamilton was referred to as the Little Lion. During the Revolutionary War, he had a nickname. He was the Little Lion. El Leoncito. No, 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 no. Go to part two, and we talked about Isaac Newton before, and this was on purpose, and so we mentioned Isaac Newton. So the Latin I want you to, to read to me, if you go to part two and you scroll down in part two, go to where I talk about, let's see, talk about deconstruction of the cover letter, and deconstruction is when you break something down into different parts, and you talk about the different parts. So I deconstruct the cover letter, go into the opening argument, and under the opening argument, and I'm going to give you the words. Okay, that's my son upstairs. Hold on. He's Latin? No. Say hi to Max, the clock man. I, I will. So the, the Le, Latin, Le Max. T-A-N-Q-U-A-M. T-A-N-Q-U-A-M. E-A-M-Q-U-A-M-X-U-N-G-U-E, Leonim, L-E-O-N-E-M. So this is... Unique, Leonim, no, status, and unique, no. Tan, Quan, and then what's the other word, the last word? So if you go to part two and you scroll down and just type in T-A-N-Q-U-A-M-E-X-U-N-G-U-E, Leonim, L-E-O-N-E-M. So the background here is that Isaac Newton, we said he was in quarantine, as in Europe, a lot of them were quarantined in 1665, but now in 1697, he is a professor at Cambridge or Oxford, and you know, he's, a math, he's published and he's a mathematics genius, and they all, he's the, the head of the, the British, um, what's it called, where they keep their money, he's the head of their mint, and he's doing all kinds of scientific work, but there was a math competition, and they published these uh, with a monetary award, that if you can solve these math problems, then we're going to give you money. And this was done by the Dutch because they wanted to see, you know, what this new math was. And Isaac Newton answers the questions in 12 hours, but he responds anonymously. He gives it to a friend who sends it to, I think, to Holland. Uh, so he solves the math problem, but he does it anonymously. And the Dutch, who sponsored this math competition, this is what they said. They said this is the Latin, T-A-N-Q-U-A-M, X-U-N-G-U-E, Leonim. So what that means in Latin is we recognize the lion by his claw. So they didn't know who wrote it. Uh-huh. They, can tell, they can tell who did this math problem, who solved it. They can recognize the lion by the claw of the lion. So without giving away too much, Hamilton was referred to as the little lion. So I'm trying to make the point, can we prove that it was the little lion? It was Hamilton who wrote this cover letter, and you're going to have to wait until next week in part two. Uh, I, I also talk about... And let's, let's mention real quick circumstantial that, evidence. That's a good way. That's a good way that, to, for us to realize what, what a magnanimous little giant he was. <laughs> Hamilton. Manny, you are preaching to the choir. Wow, he, that's really impressive. So, uh, here's more.
more background. So, you know, I don't have witnesses where I can get George Washington or Franklin or Gouverneur Morris on the phone, and nobody takes authorship. Nobody has claimed that they wrote this cover letter. All we have is Max Ferrand. And that's also and, consistent with Alex's personality. He didn't, he didn't make claims like that. He would never, he would never leave the for, records. Let's save that for next week because we don't want to give some some suspense to folks. But uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm sort of presenting the problem, the conundrum, right? So we know it's written in Gruber Morris's handwriting. Let's assume that it's Gruber Morris's handwriting. We know there were five members on the committee, and nobody on that committee, and some members of the committee said that they did things. Gruber Morris took credit. He says it was my hands, my fingers that wrote the Constitution. And Mars, and let's see, I, I mentioned earlier that Madison gives credit in, in that time frame, but M Madison was the last of the founding fathers to die. And so he outlived everybody. Hamilton dies in 1804. Madison doesn't die until 1836. He outlives everybody. And uh, what's the point? The point is that another historian, this is Jared Sparks from Harvard, is trying to write the biography of Gruber Morris. And Jared Sparks writes a letter to Madison, and he says, you know, what can you tell me about Morris? He's the guy that spoke more than anybody else. He spoke 173 times at the convention. He spoke more, and Madison is second. Madison spoke in that ballpark, in the, I think it was 168 or so times. So in this letter that Madison writes in the, I think it was 1832 or so time frame, Madison says, yes, Morris is the guy that is largely responsible for the polish and the style of the, of the Constitution. So nobody says, as much as Morris you know, claims that he, he wrote the Constitution, nobody says that they wrote the cover letter. But we do have, again, Max Baran is, is speculating because of handwriting that it was written by Morris. And I'm pointing out, that, again, giving away too much, that Morris had a lot on his plate. He's doing the entire Constitution. He's not going to have time for this cover letter. You know, if you assume the cover letter is just a quickly written, you know, this is the new Constitution, take it and uh, debate it. If you treat the cover letter as a formality, then you're, it's no big deal. It's only five paragraphs. But if you get into the weeds of what's going on in that cover letter, and I make the argument in part two that the cover letter is strategic. Whoever wrote that cover letter understood this is a document signed by Washington touching into and connecting with the society of the Cincinnati. I, I argue there's a connection with some of the, the, the words or phrases that have been used before, which were used during the debates, and a lot of the debates were memorialized, especially in certain states. We've got good transcripts. So there are ways to connect and to try to prove this thesis. I'm trying to give everybody some anticipation for next week. So that's, that's sort of the dilemma. How do we prove who wrote this cover letter? Why is it important? Why has it been overlooked by historians for so long? And, you know, I, I work very closely with, uh, I won't tell you the name of the organizations, I don't want to give away too much, but they're organizations of the different founders, right, the different libraries, and just to mention the name, it has to be one of the five. It has to be Morris, has to be Madison, has to be Hamilton, has to be Rufus King or Johnson. One of those five, you know. I, 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 so are you going to give us a hint in part two next week? Can you give us a hint? What was the monumental decision that, was, that came to pass? Because of the cover letter, or no? Well, no, we can talk about that right now. The, the cover letter is important because, and that's part three gets into the details, but the cover letter introduces the Constitution to America. It introduces it to posterity. It sets it up. It inaugurates the debate of putting in place a new government. So basically the benefits of forming the, the, the new union. 
That's right. And I argue that if we didn't have that cover letter and if they hadn't done a good job and wrote it and, you know, properly introducing the Constitution, the states may not have adopted it. The, con the Congress may not have sent it to the state. So, and there was opposition, by the way. I, I could give some names, but um, White Horse Henry Lee, who would give the eulogy for Washington, uh, did not want to send it to the states. He wanted to do certain changes. So it was not unanimous by any means that the Congress is going to be, the Articles of Confederation Congress is going to be losing, it's going to be, you know, sunset. They're going to be replacing it. Not all of the members of Congress and certainly not all the members of the governors and the different state legislatures supported this. So this letter tees up and introduces and inaugurates this new Constitution. And it was, again, signed by Washington, but after approved line by line by the Continental Congress. And I make the argument in part two, and I'm sort of teasing everybody with how I try to prove, and this is you know, presumptuous of you Levinson, now you think you can prove who wrote this letter? And the way I go about doing it is looking for words and phrases, and there are two kinds of techniques I use. One is what I refer to as linguistic fingerprints. So if, and it would have had to have been one of the five members, but if one of the five members had written letters, and I'm able to demonstrate that in July of that same year, during the Constitutional Convention, another letter was written, which used the certain phrases which are in the cover letter. So if you had to pick and choose who wrote the letter, if someone had used that, not exact words, but similar words and phrases, that's pretty good circumstantial evidence. If during the debates, somebody had been using some of those words and phrases, that's pretty good evidence. So that's kind of the way that we put this together. And I want to talk about circumstantial evidence real quickly. And I, I set it up. But you ran out of time. It's already 8.03. Okay, so just to invite everybody, go and read part one, which is sort of what we talked about tonight, and tease up the dilemma, this question. Part two really starts answering who wrote this cover letter. Well, for me, it's a slam dunk. The lion leaves his claws. I mean, come on. So who's the lion is the question. And what I'll point out is when you go to part two, I, I quote from, we quoted from this time frame 1695 with Isaac Newton, you know the lion by his claw. And I also quote one of my famous British authors, and this is Sir Conan Doyle from the Boscombe Valley Mystery. And of course, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, does either of you want to jump out? Who's the famous detective from England? Character. It's got to be Sherlock. Yes. There you go. So Sherlock Holmes. So there's a, a famous quote in... Sherlock Holmes, one of the Sherlock Holmes books. This is the Boscombe Valley Mystery, and everyone knows this was a fiction. Yeah, it's Sherlock Holmes' is fiction. But it's a quote from Sherlock Holmes about circumstantial evidence. So I say, yeah, circumstantial evidence that can lead you astray, and it can confuse you, and you can get the wrong answer, so circumstantial evidence. But sometimes circumstantial evidence is better than direct evidence or testimonial evidence, because witnesses could be confused, they could be purposely lying, but I think my evidence, which admittedly is circumstantial evidence, is powerful. I've got a mountain of evidence in part two, because I, mean, I, I will tell you, if you're going to try to go through it all at one time, have a nice adult beverage or other beverage, there's a lot going on in part two, and that's where I get into the proof of who wrote the Constitution's cover letter, and uh, within the next six months, hopefully, uh, you'll be reading more about this in, uh, in journals and in uh, uh, magazines, etc. because it's, it's uh, something which historians are embracing, and uh, just stay tuned. So that will, that's where we're going to leave off tonight. Stay next tuned and stay free, my friends. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Thank you, Adam. Adam, uh, you got to do your website again, your phone number, all those things. So the website, one more time, is Statutes and Stories, and I'd like to tell you that Statutes is spelled with three T's, and it's all one word. Statutes, which is, has an S at the end, Statutes, A-N-D, no space, StatutesAndStories.com, and if you want to listen to the show again or future shows or prior shows, you go to the WFQF website and click on the Statutes and Stories section 
of WSQF, and you can listen to all of our podcasts. And Manny, I'm great. I'm glad to hear that uh, you're you're back and up and running and better than ever. And it's always a pleasure to speak to the folks who listen to the readership and listenership of WSQF. Thank you very much, Adam. Take care. We'll see you next week. And everybody stay safe. Thank you. That was the end of the Statues and Stories Hour with Adam Levinson and his sidekick. And remember, it's WSQF, Ed Vidal. WSQFradio.com. WSQFradio.com. Live streamed and on your radio, WSQF 94.5. Blink Radio, keep us gain. Stay free, my friends. Be there and be square. It takes a lot to live.